Pete and Rob Babcock are former NBA general managers who have worked for many decades in the NBA and have worked in a variety of capacities from coaching, scouting, player personnel, and team management. The Babcock name is synonymous within the history of NBA basketball, and their brother Dave is still in the biz. When I was growing up and working my scouting chops, both Pete and Rob were there lending me a hand. The Babcocks are highly respected in the basketball community, and some of those accomplishments are not documented. Oh, yeah. It's all about the drive, Welcome baby. to The Drive on the Road with Ryan Blake. I'm here at the Playback Sound Studios in Atlanta with Pete and Rob Babcock. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for being here. Uh, I'm sorry we couldn't get Dave here. Uh, I know he's probably back in, in Phoenix uh, with his commitment, probably with what, uh, a Groupon clogging. Uh, uh, he's, he's, he's the Caribbean cruiser right now. He's in, uh, in Atlantis, Bahamas, scouting the tournament. Oh, that's nice. Tough assignment. Those were some of our nicer uh, <laughs> venues to yeah, go to. Right. Yeah, the fall tournaments. Um, let's get directly into it. Uh, let's talk about where, how this all began. You know, growing up in Phoenix, Arizona, Pete, you're the oldest. Rob, you're three years younger than Pete. And, of course, Dave is six years younger than, than Rob. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is how you got into basketball. I mean, growing up, and I know you had to compete with each other. Uh, how did you get in it, and how were your parents involved? Well, I was the first one to start being the oldest. Uh, the, the, the other two had no creativity at all, and they couldn't come up with their own career path, so they decided to follow so me. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I guess it just started probably in junior high, uh, just started playing. That's when you started? Yeah, okay. never, never played until junior high. Uh, for me, uh, Rob and Dave played a lot younger than I did, but but I started uh, actually in about the little bit in the seventh grade, a little more seriously in the eighth grade, and then really embraced the game when I was a freshman in high school. And how were your parents involved? Well, uh, well, started off with we we were in the air, grew up in the Air Force, right? So when we were stationed in Colorado Springs. My father put a basket up. This is in the fifties, so I think I was probably six years old or so and he put a basket up uh, it was a, a rental house but he got permission from landlord and uh the first time i made a basket home i was hooked so my, my dad was an athlete um and so he he always had a basket up. so when we moved to phoenix he retired out of the air force he put another basket up and you know that's that's all we needed and from there they they were just supportive on anything that we did so it was they, they were great parents in that way now there was an age difference, obviously, between y'all two, and and your brother Dave. W but y'all never competed in high school together. No, we didn't. Uh, I was three years older, so my senior year in high school, Rob was a freshman in high school. So uh, we used to play on in the driveway together all the time. We we go to uh, parks and play, uh, try to find the best competition we could, and and Rob would come with me, along with my friends who were obviously older. And, and he would jump in and play. And so he started advancing very quickly because he's playing against older people all the time. Who was the most competitive? I think we all were pretty pretty competitive in that. But uh, let's give an we, we played in the driveway. That's where we competed a lot, Pete and I. And, of course, him being three years older and at that time, even now probably, like 50 pounds heavier 
and <laughs> taller. He just, you know, it was it was bully ball for him, and, and uh, so I went about zero and three thousand before I finally beat him. I think it was what, my, maybe my freshman year. That's when you came up with the rule, though, to win the game. You had to win by two, but you had to win on an outside shot. You couldn't win. So otherwise, he's just going to back <laughs> back me in, throw me into the garage door, and you know, and then just and there was no fouls called. I mean, I called mine, but he never called his. So the first time I beat him, he he was so upset. I mean, he threw the ball at me as hard as he could, but he missed. And uh, and I ran because I knew he was. He coming. airballed I, you. I, I ran because I knew he was going to start coming after me, but I was way quicker than he he was, and uh, I um, I went out and ran down the street, and I was so happy I did a, a victory lap around the block. That's his perspective on things. It probably wasn't quite that way. But no, that's he, the way it happened. Good. He has that's, a that's creative the way imagination. No, but both of y'all went to college after high school. You both went to college to play basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, did y'all discuss, like, well, for you, you made the decision, Pete, to, to, to decide where you wanted to go to school, and did you have any influence on, on where he wanted to go or, and vice versa? When you well, it was, it was a different set of circumstances. I, I was an overachieving player. I wasn't a big-time star athlete, and so I had limited options. So I, I played in junior college for two years out of uh, high school, and then out of, out of junior college, had opportunities to go to a number of smaller division schools, but not Division One. Um, Rob was the most uh, celebrated player of all the brothers, and he was a high school All-American and All-State player, player of the year in the state of Arizona. So he was recruited by all the big schools. So it was a t- different situation. He didn't have to help me decide to go to junior college <laughs> because that's the only place I could go. He had to, he had to make some tough decisions. And then, and little brother Dave. Yeah, that's the only one that he that they would let him in, because <laughs> yeah, his grades were, were weren't quite as good. To, Not as good. You know. Oh Lord! Now, now Pete, after after college, you worked as a high school coach. Is this? Did you have any aspirations to do something in the NBA? And how did you get your foot in the door? Like, what did you always want to do after college? Well, we grew up as Boston Celtics fans because our family was all from New England. And uh, when I was in college, the uh, uh, the Phoenix Suns moved to town as an expansion team, 1968. And so we would go down to Suns games. And those days, it was like $3.50 for a general admissions ticket. And there were 3,000 people at the game. So you go sit basically where you wanted to sit. And I'd go down to the games, and I was just enamored with the NBA. It's like... I want, I, if I could do anything in the world, that's what it would be. I had no idea how to get there. I didn't know exactly what it is I wanted to do, but I'd love to work in the basketball side of the NBA. So I spent a year um, kind of doing a self-education project. Uh, while I was coaching in high school, I would videotape games that were on TV. In those days, not nearly as many games were televised as they are today. But I tell them, I would videotape everything I could videotape. I'd break the tapes down, chart, build files on each team, their offensive sets, I'd chart their plays, out-of-bounds plays, write reports on players, just for myself, just to learn about the league. Then at the end of the year, I thought, well, the people who will know best whether these are any good or not will be the teams themselves. So... I mailed the Celtics their report. I mailed the Bulls their report. I mailed the Sixers their report, and on and on. And I just wrote a letter. You know, and we had no, you know, um, computers. We didn't have email. So yeah, I wrote a uh, 
a hard letter, put it in the mail, said, hey, this is, I'm a high school coach. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, you don't know me, but here's the report that I wrote on your, on your team this year. If you, have this any, if you think it's valid at all, I, I'll volunteer to scout for free. It won't cost you a penny. Just trying to get my foot in the door. And most teams didn't respond. Some teams are nice enough to write back and say thanks, but no thanks. The old New Orleans Jazz basically said, we don't have a whole lot of money for scouting. You want to scout for free? Go ahead. So I did. And that's how it started. Wow. And, and Rob, you sort of had the same path after college. You started coaching in high school. So was this something as well that you wanted to get into the NBA after? What was I, your I wasn't. You know, I always wanted to be an NBA player, and about halfway through college realized that I might not be an NBA player, and I wanted to do basketball, so I went, you know, into high school coaching right away, um, which I loved high school coaching. It was great. But I did did a similar thing to Pete, and I sent a letter to to every team in the league and just looking for – and back then, you know, NBA, there wasn't big money. Staffs were very small. Uh, For a lot of their scouting, they used regional scouts and paid them per game. And I sent a letter. I got response back from one team that was positive. I got six teams sent back. One, the the assistant coach Bob Klottenberg had recruited me uh, out of high school. Remembered me. Needed somebody in the Southwest. And he wrote me a letter and said, "We need somebody there, basically, to do advanced scouting, which is team team scouting." So that was my my first job, and I was doing that. You know, while I was a high school coach. Um, and that led to you know a couple other teams, and Pete was already in the league at that time. So I always, I always did uh, scouting for Pete wherever he was to help him out, because his staff was like he was with the San Diego Clippers his first job. There were three people on the the staff. The whole basketball staff was three people. Sounds like the Clippers at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would always help him out and uh, help him prepare, prepare for the draft. But Pete, Pete got his, his foot in the door and, and really opened it up for the rest of us. And when you were with the Clippers, uh, you got your chance there to work with the Clippers. And then after that or during that, how did that progress? Well, it, and not the, as Rob mentioned, that we had a very small staff. Uh, Paul Silas was the head coach. Bill Westfall and I were the two assistant coaches, and that was it. And my responsibilities were pretty multifaceted. I, I did all the advanced scouting for the team. I did all the college scouting. Nobody else on the staff saw, ever saw a college player play. I ran the draft. Uh, I was on the bench for probably 60 of our 82 games every year, so I was with the team quite a bit. So I was at a game every day for the season. Um, the good part of it was it gave me experience doing all these different things. Um, and then by my fourth year there, I uh, became the general manager of the team, not because of anything special I did, but literally my fourth year with the Clippers, I was the senior member of the basketball franchise. Uh, Paul Silas was gone. We had a new head coach in Jimmy Lynham. Uh, so kind of by default, I became the general manager. Had y'all moved by then? We, we, we were in San Diego. Okay. Right. Uh, in fact, we had moved that year. The first three years, my wife taught in Phoenix, and I, and I kept an apartment and would travel back and forth when I could. And we thought things were final sta- finally stabilizing with the Clippers, so we, so we moved to San Diego full-time. And at the end of the season, Sterling moved the team to Los Angeles, and that's when I resigned and signed with the Denver Nuggets. And for you... Your transition came what three years later? No, it was it was it was uh, later than that because I, I 
uh, coached high school for nine years, and then I got a junior college job in Phoenix and, and coached junior college. So um, when Pete went with the Nuggets, he, he wasn't the general manager at first, and then when he became general manager, um, then he hired me, and I, and I went in as uh, director of scouting and player development. And how, what happened after that? How did you move uh, away from Denver? What was your next... Well, Next. Pete got fired, so that 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 started it. <laughs> I got fired. Technically, I resigned, but we we had what happened was is we had uh, um, we worked for a terrific owner, Sidney Schlenker, and uh, when, and then he he made me president of the team, so I was president GM, and then then he made me one of his partners, so I was a minority partner, and in 1990. He sold the team, which included my share being sold also, and so um, there was a big dilemma. What they, the new owners didn't know what to do with me because I had a long-term contract. And they they didn't really want to pay me. They kind of wanted me just to walk away. That wasn't going to happen. So we met a we came with a party of the ways, and so technically I resigned, but they didn't want me back. So so in reality, I got fired. But uh, that's how I ended up in Atlanta. And then you became the GM of Atlanta. Um, and it was a great period for Atlanta during that time. Uh, Rob, at that time, you were climbing the ladder with Minnesota. Well, no, actually, um, they kept me in, in Denver. So I thought for sure uh, they kept me through the end of the season because they had to have somebody to, to work the draft and everything. I was the only one who knew what was going on. So they kept me, and I figured after the draft they were going to let me go. Uh, they brought Bernie Bickerstaff in as the um, new general manager, and Bernie called me his office. I thought, oh, this is a, I, I was expecting to get fired. And he said, you know, I really like what you do, and I've heard good things about you, and I, I'd like you to stay on. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I, I stayed there for another two years and then went to Minnesota. Now, were you fished away from them, or you had a bigger no, I, opportunity? No, I ended up getting let go um, because of a numbers situation. Um, wasn't anything negative or anything so um, but it worked out very well for me Jack McCloskey was the general manager and just been hired in Minnesota and Jack was one he was with the Pistons before that he was one of the teams that I had done some part-time scouting for so um, you know I had a little bit of relationship and then, and then Pete knew him well and and I was fortunate to be able to go there now with you being in Minnesota Rob and Pete being in Atlanta, y'all would go obviously meet each other or see each other quite a bit, evaluating players and and different events and, and so forth. Was it difficult to keep your evaluations or opinions to yourself, or did you happen to, you know, were you able to share secrets at the time? Or was well, it? We had a code, and it was, uh, and I used to tell because. I remember Kevin McHale would always come to me and, and flip Saunders and they'd say, call Pete and Dave and, and find, find out what they're doing. And, and I said, look, guys, you'll get, have a better chance of getting information out of them calling yourself than me. Because we just had this, this code that you just weren't, weren't going to cross that line and put anybody in a, in a difficult situation. And we, you know, we honored that all, all the way through. But we had some interesting situations uh, come up all the time. Where we're we're either going after the same free agent. Remember that one time? Who was uh, the free agent? We were we were um, all talking to. It was actually when Peach's daughter was getting married up in uh, 
and and we were, you know, phones would ring, and I'd go in one room and <laughs> go someplace else, and we couldn't tell because we were all going after the same, the same guy. I don't think any one of us got him, but. Lorenzo Wright, maybe I don't know. I, I can't remember. I can't remember, I can't remember who, who uh, it was then. But we had it was it, like Rob said. We had a code between the three of us. Uh, Dave golf because Dave was working in the league, and we travel together frequently, like a lot of scouts do, and people who are out scouting, whether you're a scout or a GM or whatever. And uh, we just didn't talk about our our own franchise's business. But if we were, but but we were like any other group of guys on the road. We go see a player play. And we, you know, we we would talk about what we thought of the player, like you would with almost anybody else on the road, right. uh, as long as it didn't hurt your franchise. If you if you if there was some player, you know, in today's world, nobody's hidden anymore. You don't find somebody that nobody knows about uh, because everything's out there. Uh, with, but back in those days, it was different. It was different. Yeah, it, it was different in, in those days in the beginning. We didn't have the, mm. the mass media and the. The uh, technology. technology, yeah. We had to set up some other guidelines too. Like when we travel together, that we had to start making it like a three-day limit because it could get. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there were. I remember many times. Is that with just you two, or is that also no, with Dave? Your dad was with us often, often yeah. times. Yeah. So, so Marty was in the was car. Was that a one-day limit with Marty? So, that's so <laughs> one day, yeah. So, the Marty used to go. Harding used to say, "This is really fun traveling. You guys, you guys are entertaining." Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Well, one because I, I I'd set stuff up with Mark because I I would drive and and I hope uh, so. especially <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because if you drove with Marty, you had thank no, you. You had no idea <laughs> if you're where he was going or anything. So it was a uh, it was always an adventure with with uh, Marty and then Will Robinson and we had Stan Novak. Um, so oftentimes I'd end up traveling with the three of those guys. And Dickie McGuire. Oh, that, that, and, and Dickie that was McGuire, the greatest, watching uh, Dickie and um, Will scout a game because Will would go to Dickie and go, hey, what number is that guy? Who is that? Yeah. And Dickie would go, <laughs> and you couldn't understand what he was saying. And so exactly. Dickie would Dickie go, what'd you, you know, Will would go, what'd you say? And I can't see. It was, <laughs> right. it was an, now, did you all ever have the opportunity to work together uh, in player trades? Uh, anything like that? Uh, we that, did, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Leitner trade was one, uh, probably the biggest one that we made with each other. We, um, Rob can speak to it about that about the Minnesota end of it, but it appeared that things were going off the track a little bit with Leitner and Kevin McHale and Flip, something like that. So Leitner's available in trade. So we we. We get Leitner for Andrew Lang and Spud Webb, which was a tough trade to make, not not talent-wise because Christian didn't make the all-star team with us and was very good with us, um, but just emotionally we were so tied in with Spud and with, with, with Andrew Lang, it was hard to do that. But uh, that was that was maybe, when, we, when I say it was contentious, I'm assuming that because when we had the press conference where I'm sitting at the table with Leitner, introducing him to our media, he decides to go off on a little rant on uh, Kevin and Flip, and he goes, yeah, I just came from Dumb and Dumber. And so so I had to soften things with our media, and I, so right away I said, and I hope I don't become the next derivative of that dumbest, you know, so, and then he kind of laughed a little bit. I was just trying to lighten the mood, and it's like, you didn't have to say that. It was not necessarily, you know. No, I remember I went out to this again. We had smaller staffs back then. I went out to the airport to pick up um, um, Andrew and Spud, um, and Spud came off first. And you know, he comes out. And the first thing he says, 
this guy needs help. He does not want to be here. <laughs> and, and Andrew comes walking down the skyway. He is not pleased at all. And, and Andrew's a great, a great guy, but he did not want to be traded to, to Minnesota. And um, it, all, it all worked out, though. What about um, J.R. Ryder? Um, you drafted J.R., right? And J.R. was an unbelievable talent. Uh, but he was also an unusual person. Um, when he came here, there's got to be some unbelievable stories about him. But you you knew him before, right? Right. And we we knew, uh, I remember sitting in, uh, Jack McCloskey drafted, drafted him. And I remember sitting in Jack's office and uh, we had a speakerphone on. We're talking to Jerry Tarkanian. And we, we know um, JR's already had some incidents in, in college. And so Jack's asking about him, and, and Tark assures him, oh, he's fine, it's just growing up stuff, you know, immaturity and, and everything like that. And JR is actually a, a really, really nice guy, very intelligent guy. And we bring him in, but he's, but he's one of these guys that could not say no to his friends. And, and he, was, he was immature in, in many ways, but he had, a, he had a big heart. I'll give you an example, mate. I remember uh, my son's birthday. He, we brought uh, two of his buddies to the game, and uh, and sometime before the game, I just said, "Hey, if you run into Chris, just say happy birthday for him uh, to him. I think he'd get a kick out of that." And um, I'm go through the whole game, and they're waiting for me in our NBA official vehicle. Uh, Plymouth Chrysler uh, minivan, <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> your, your typical NBA car, and uh, and so he and his buddies. So I go back to get him and go drive home, and, and I I didn't, never did see Jr. anywhere. I go back there, open thing. Jr. sitting in the van with the three guys, and had been in there for like 15 minutes, just hanging out with them and talking and everything. And uh, of course, the guys just just loved it. And he was genuine in that in that type of stuff. Um, so he, I, I, I like Jr. And from a talent perspective, oh my gosh, he was just off the. He was an elite. You know, he was just absolute elite talent. But he just, you know, he just had some other other issues. And um, it, it's too bad because he could have he could have been a perennial all star. And when he and when he arrived, I remember one story. What was I think he was supposed to go to Chattanooga or something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was that? Well, we had training camp in Chattanooga, and uh, um, typical of a pattern of what his behavior was like. The short time we had him, uh, he didn't show up for training camp, and I'm on I'm on the phone with his agent, and he finally comes in a day or two late, probably one day late. You know, we find him for being late and. You know, he was upset about that, and then it was just one issue after another. We making the trade. Um, we went into it knowing exactly what we were getting, uh, and I had talked to Rob, and Rob had told me the story behind everything. But it would, but I didn't really need Rob's input because everything was in Sports Illustrated. Everything was in the paper. I mean, it was, it was all well documented. In fact, I remember sitting down with our staff before we made the trade, and there was a Sports Illustrated article in particular that detailed listed chronologically all the different things that had happened all the missteps and i made a copy for everybody and i sat they sat in my office and i read it to everybody so i said not only going to hand you the copy i'm going to read this out loud because i want everybody here to understand this is what we're bringing in to the situation here and he may be the nicest guy in the world but there are issues that we're going to inherit 
and we're basketball people. We're not we're not psychologists. We're not you know we're not social workers. We don't we don't have the means of dealing with some of these issues. Um, we ended up making the very ill-advised trade, uh, trading Steve Smith. And I told the media even that we're just understand that we're getting the anti-Steve Smith in this. Steve Smith is like the you know the best of the best in all phases, off the court, on the court, and we're getting the anti-Steve Smith. Now, the short time we had Jr., I got along with him great. He, he, like Rob said, he, I think he has a good heart. He's a nice person. Friends with him today on Facebook. You know, so we stay in touch. Um, but but he's he still afraid to fly. But I think that I, yeah, wasn't that that they that, wouldn't. That, that was, <laughs> you know, I think that was one of the stories, and you know, uh, we, we heard every story you could imagine. But uh, yeah, we we only we made a trade only because we were told to get rid of their long term contracts and and start the team over, which it was a terrible mistake. The team had a good four or five years left in it. Now, not being a championship team. You know, we we weren't naive enough to think that well, this team can win a championship, but but we had we had, we finished with the second best record in the East that year. It was 1999. We beat Detroit, who was a very good team in the first round. We lost to the Knicks in the second round, and they went on to the finals. And then we were told, and AOL Time Warner had just purchased our team, and they said, tear it up and start it over, and it was a big mistake. Both Pete and Rob are high character guys and they had a great reputation from the peers for their work on and off the court. I wanted to know what their biggest accomplishments were and what they were most proud of. Yeah, that's not, that's, that's a pretty easy question. Uh, the fact that we had as many Kennedy Award winners as we had, without question. The Kennedy Award, for the people who don't know, is uh, an award given to the player in the NBA, one player a year the entire NBA that gives the most back to his community. Um, and we, we had, uh, we had the only trainer ever to get it, Joe O'Toole. We had the Kim Matumbo got it twice. Uh, Doc Rivers won it. I think Smitty won it. Uh, I have to go back and check that. I think he did. Uh, but we, we, we just had an unusual high number of Kennedy award winners. And I think it's the thing that'd be most proud of. And Rob, what about you with, with Minnesota? Uh, what what are you most proud of uh, working there during that tenure, whether it was with your team or in or and or without? Well, when I when I went there, we were a you know just just coming off. Of, I didn't go there right at the beginning of the expansion. It was an expansion team, so I was there a couple years after that, and you know we we built the team it, it took a while uh but we we had a plan and we stuck with the plan and it it took a period of time but we ended up being one of the best teams in the league for you know a, a good a good stretch uh, you know a, a very good stretch so I'm very proud of that and uh and then like like Pete with you know Pete we we the whole family has always been involved in community stuff and so um I didn't get any Kennedy awards or anything like that but uh just getting getting involved in in the community, He's smiling over there, <laughs> and and uh, and community projects, and I, I always continued on with uh, like a, a high school teacher that I that I was, and getting involved in education, and spent a lot of time in the schools with either at risk kids or leadership groups or you know you know whatever, and and just spending time and and staying involved and trying to make an impact wherever I could. Is that something that you collectively urged each other to do, or is that something that well, was Pete, a great through Pete your started parents? doing it, you know, er, early on. 
And this is something we just didn't do as as MBA, but even as high school coaches, we were doing these things. Yeah. Well, plus, Dad was, uh, our father was uh, on the board of directors of the Urban League in Phoenix. And and when I was a college student, uh, he got me on the board of directors of the Urban League in Phoenix. And, I th- you know, he just kind of set an example of giving back to the community and doing what we could. And so it 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 broadened my horizons quite a bit at the time because I grew up, we both grew up in a time where the civil rights movement, the war in Vietnam, all those things were going on. And so people growing up were more politically aware, I think, and more socially conscious than maybe uh, in years later. And I had a chance to work with um, Jesse Owens, people like that on the, in the Urban League in Phoenix and listen to him and his experiences and learn from him. So that kind of spurred an interest in me and being involved. I decided to switch gears and talk about what has to be one of the toughest challenges a general manager has to face, and that is the decision whether or not to trade your franchise player. In Atlanta, future Hall of Famer Dominique Wilkins was the face of Atlanta sports. He played at the University of Georgia and had tremendous success in Atlanta. However, he was nearing the tail end of his career and was hampered by injuries. Pete had a tough decision, and the story was not the one he read in the papers. It was it was really an, emo- an emotional deal for us because he was the face face of the franchise and still remains uh, probably the face of the franchise today. Um, what happened was we really didn't want to make the trade. Um, his contract was up at the end of the year. Uh, his agent was asking for, I believe it was Larry Johnson had just signed a big deal in Charlotte. And in those days, we didn't have the, the uh, salary situations that we have today in terms of length or collective bargaining issues with length of contract. And I'll, I'll have these numbers wrong, but let's say Larry signed a seven-year deal, some, some big deal, long-term. And his agent wanted Neek to get the same deal. And Neek was 34 years old and relied on his, his great physical gifts uh, and his love of the game. That's what drove him. Uh, but those physical gifts were beginning to slide a little bit, not to his fault at all. It's just he's getting older. Absolutely. So he couldn't jump as high, wasn't quite as explosive, and, and that was a big part of his game, and he was phenomenal. And, and, and he, he, he's, as much as any player I've ever been with, he loved to play, absolutely loved to compete. So we, we tried to talk him into, well, look, we don't want to trade you. You should never be traded. You should be the face of this franchise and retire with this franchise. But we can't go out seven years. We, we'll sign you to short-term contracts, keep you the highest-paid player every year on our with the team, but short-term contracts. And then when it's over, it's over. And they, they wouldn't go with go for that. And we had a number of meetings with Nick, talked to his agent regularly about it, about uh, trying to talk him out of it. And the response we kept getting back was fine. Uh, if you have to trade us, it's fine. We understand the business, no problem. <clears throat> right up before the trade deadline, we're in Minnesota, of all, of, you know, where Rob's hometown was at the time, uh, for the All-Star game. My daughter flew in from college. She and I are having lunch at the hotel where we were all staying. Donald Sterling comes by our table where we're having lunch and sits down with us and makes his big pitch for Dominique, how much he needs them. He's a marquee player, sell tickets in L.A., and on and on and on. And Elgin and I had been talking some. Elgin was the G- GM. And uh, I said, well, Elgin and I will keep talking and see if we can come up with something. But Mr. Turning leaves, and then within 10 or 15 minutes, Dominique walks in the restaurant. So I call him over, 
he sits down with my daughter and with me, and I tell him the entire story. You know, that Mr. Sterling was just here, he's made his big push, you know, they want you in the worst way, and right now, just so you know, uh, it would normally wouldn't tell a player all the details of what's going on behind the scenes with the trade, but because of what you represent, I'm telling you, the only team that really has interest is the Clippers. So if anything happens, it'll be with the Clippers. And it was like, fine, I, I understand the business, no problem whatsoever. So fast forward a couple of weeks, we make the trade. Um, and, um, you know, it was devastating for him, which which made it more devastating for us because um, Stan Katz and I drove to his house to tell him face to face. And his wife uh, at the time answered the door. We told her what was going on. She invited us in. She said, he's not home right now, um, but you're, well, well, willing to, you're welcome to wait. We did. And after about an hour, so we got to go back and make, do the conference call. You know, so please have him call us. Um, it's two in the morning. Have him call us. We'll come over because we promised him. We tell him face to face. Never heard back from him. And then the next morning, press conference he's having at his house with an ESPN or whatever. And our PR director came in and said, "Turn on the TV." He had the press conference. He had a press conference. Yeah, and said the, you know, he. he I think he just went into shock. You know, they didn't really. I don't think he really believed it was going to happen. Um, and had I and I've told him since. Had I known it would have been that painful for him, we maybe would have just held on and waited until the end of the season and taken our chances at the end of the year. Uh, as it worked out, not not you can't forecast this, but as it worked out, at the end of the year, um, Danny Manning, who we got in the trade, was also up at the end of the year, which is what we wanted specifically because we didn't want to be tied to a player. We offered him a long-term deal. He signed with Phoenix instead on a short-term deal. Everybody thought we got killed in this whole thing, even though we finished with the best record in the East that year. Um, and then it opened the door for us to get Matumbo, though. That's how we had the cap room to get Matumbo. So it actually worked out for the best, but we certainly didn't know that at the time. Did y'all two ever talk about this while this was going on? Did y'all discuss the scenarios? I don't know. If we no, did. I don't the think we did. No. I don't think we did. I did when Rob got the job in Toronto as a general manager. Um, I did tell him, my experience, because he now had the Vince Carter situation. I just said, if you if you're going to trade the face of your franchise, you can't win. If you don't trade them, you lose. If you do, and, and it's a little different. Neek wasn't demanding a trade. Under different circumstances, Rob also faced the challenge of a trade demand from their franchise player Vince Carter as one of Rob's first decisions when he was hired as the Raptors' new GM. They decided to do a rebuild in, in Toronto, you know, and they they uh, they fired uh, Glenn Grunwald, who's a good friend with me uh, with uh, of mine. Actually, worked with him in Denver. Um, great, great guy. Great guy. They they fired the uh, the head coach uh, Kevin O'Neill, and they start. We're going to start over again. Um, and I don't think, and I, I completely understand. I don't think Vince was was pleased with that. I don't think he wanted to start over again and and there i think so he demanded a trade and anytime that happens pete says it's and it gets out public the value of the player immediately goes down, goes down. and so it's it make it's a very uh, difficult situation i'd never met vince before so um we we talked with him and he was great about everything but you know he did he didn't want to be traded so uh, it took a while for us to find a, a, a deal that made you know some type of sense, um, you know, before we did it, um, and it was it was it was very it was very difficult. It was difficult on 
on Vince, it was difficult on the, the fans. Um, you know, the fans felt betrayed that anybody would demand, you know, trade out of Toronto um, from a loyalty standpoint. And so it was um, it, it was a tough situation, not the, the greatest way to start off uh, on your on your rebuild. But it's what it's just you have to do it because once a player demands a trade publicly, if you keep them, you have a disgruntled player, you know, and that's not going to work real well either. Now, Pete, you had all the success in the late 90s, capping off with the best record in the Eastern Conference in, in 94. Went on average 50 wins that season, uh, and for the next season, six seasons, I think, mm-hmm. over 50 wins. In 1999, you uh, finished only two games off the best record in the East. Uh, but then in 1999, you made a change. Well, as I was saying earlier, um, AOL Time Warner had just per- taken over our team in terms of ownership, and um, we were basically, it was somewhat convoluted. There was no no owner we answered to. Like, Stan Caston represented the face of ownership as much as anybody, so that's who I answered to. But, but you know, AOL Time Warner is this huge conglomerate, of, and so there was like this faceless entity uh, that that you dealt with, and it was basically strip it all down. Uh, now, whether in retrospect that was to clear the books so it was easier to sell the team because eventually they, they sold it pretty quickly, um, or, or something else, I don't know. I wasn't privy to that. All I know is that we were stripping it down, uh, Smitty, his knees were a little tender, but not not bad. I mean, he he had a good run left in him, and he, and he when we traded him, he still played well for Portland and 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 other places that he ended up before he retired. And he's represents the best, as I said before, of the best. Um, um, and then we were told that uh, Stan told me we won't resign Dikembe, so you, he told me my choice was uh, trade him, or he walks as a free agent. Well, we can't afford to let him walk out the door. You know, we got to get something in return for him. Uh, but we did what we wanted. To, my opinion was we wanted we wanted to keep him. I mean, you you let Steve Smith go, you let you let Dikembe go. You you know Grant Long, Ty Corbin, all these pieces of the puzzle that made it work so well. The chemistry was so strong between all those guys. Um, once you start doing that, it uh, it starts falling apart. And and then it took and then. To cap it off, the J.R. Ryder trade was the very first one, and that, that drove us that deeper into the hole, I thought, because of all the problems we dealt with with J.R. until we cut him before the season was over. But um, we, we tried to piece it back together, and we had um, we traded for Sharif Abdul-Rahim, who's class first-class person, all-star. We traded for Glenn Robinson, another uh, our all-star player. We traded for Theo Ratliff. An all-star player. We had three all-stars across the front line. We had a shot-blocking center in Theo. We thought that would help negate some of the loss with Dikembe, and uh, and then in the backcourt we had Jason Terry as a young guy to build with. And then we needed one more piece in the backcourt, and the chemistry didn't work. It, not not that they didn't get along. It's just the chemistry didn't work, and uh, you get lucky when you have good chemistry. And we had it in the '90s, and mm-hmm. those pieces didn't fit together that well. And then the losses, and then, of course, getting let go. Were mm-hmm. you were you prepared? Do you are you ever prepared for that? Uh, yeah, I, don't th- I, th- I, I oh. knew Stan and I were butting heads for the last uh, 
during that rebuild process for three years, philosophically. Uh, I mean, Stan's a brilliant person, uh, as smart, as intelligent as anybody you'll ever come across. Um, I used to tell him, I, I said, I can't win a debate with you because you're so much smarter than I am. I may be 100% right, but I will lose the debate. I just, you can't. You just can't win. Uh, so he's, he's, he's a brilliant person. Um, we just had, you know, philosophically, we looked at it differently. And uh, in the last three years during the rebuild, uh, you know, we, we butted heads on, you know, my contract. And I would work on a series of one-year deals to finish up and, and then... Uh, you know, it just uh, came came to a point where it wasn't a shock, but it, but after you've been there 13 years, it's it's a shock to your system because it's, it's been your life for 13 years. And at this time, Rob, you were uh, your reputation as an NBA executive was soaring in Minnesota at the time. Uh, I don't know how you're able to help him during this this process. I know you don't drink, so you just wouldn't <laughs> right. take him out drinking. Yeah. Um, but it was a year later. Uh, you get hired as the the new GM of the the Raptors. How were you able to to, to help, you know, as brothers? Well, I hired him in Toronto. <laughs> that's a good start. Oh, that's that's right. Right. <laughs> um, kind of Pete, Pete, almost full circle. Then, <laughs> yeah. so Pete, Pete was very helpful in the in the whole process, and uh, um, you know, I. I, I worked hard to, to get the opportunity. I had several opportunities um, and interviews for GMs, but didn't get them. They're very difficult jobs to get. Um, but what ultimately gets you those jobs is winning. And in Minnesota, we had, we had built a championship contender, and we had lost in the Western Conference Finals to the Lakers. Um, I honestly felt we had the best team in the league that year, but we Sam Cassell got, got hurt, Troy Hudson got hurt. We had Fred Hoiberg playing the point guard, um, so he, <laughs> and Fred Fred's a, a good friend of mine, and he's a, he he was a very good player, but he's not a point guard. So we we um, that's you know propelled me into consideration in Toronto, and so I ended up getting the job. But Pete and I talked quite a bit all the way through, and it was um, it was an interesting situation because it, 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 we knew they wanted to rebuild. Uh, philosophically going in I, right away. From, I remember after the interview, I I told Pete, I called Pete and I said, I can tell you philosophically, um, and they're a corporation too owned, and the but the people that I interviewed, like I said, philosophically, they're here and I'm here. I said, but I can work with anybody, and you don't get very many opportunities to do this. So I so I so I took the job. So I figured Pete Pete hired me in Denver. So I, I figured I'd hire him, um, and plus, with his experience level, I mean, what's the one thing I wouldn't do is, you know, I made him stay in Atlanta and work work out of Atlanta, because otherwise, he, he, it would just well, we, it would be it would be too it, difficult it, a situation. Because as you can see, look, I from the first three years of my life, I didn't talk. <laughs> he did all the talking for me, and then sounds like my dad. That was yeah. for fifty years. And then I think he realized that yeah, the kid better learn to talk because he's going to start nursery school next year, so he's going to have to do something. And so he start, finally started letting me talk. But uh, well, so he he worked he, he worked out of Atlanta, which uh, and then plus uh, it was very difficult and expensive to bring a lot of staff into Toronto because of all the logistics from you know working in the in a foreign country. And well, one of the things remember I told you was that I thought 
that when you offered me the job, I said, I'll do it. Obviously, I'll do it. But I thought there needed to be a buffer. He needed to have somebody other than his brother to be his right-hand guy in his ear. And on staff already was Jack McCloskey, who had won several championships and been a, a longtime general manager. Jack was on the staff. He was a consultant. Yeah. Consultant. And Rob made him more active at that point. And then, uh, I, and then I talked. I talked to Rob about Wayne Embry, and I said, "Let's let's call Wayne, and and see if Wayne would be interested because that would give you have Wayne and Jack in your ear all the time. I'll be there too, but if I'm not." there at your side day by day that, that'll be better for you and that, that's what he did he hired Wayne yeah so we had a we had an unbelievably experienced staff and uh, which and those guys are all very very helpful for me I mean if anything came up I was able to you know get them on the phone get their perspective I and mean, between the three of them the number of years of experience as a GM was like off the charts so it was uh that that, that was a, a good situation and and it worked out good though he did you know he did stay at my place when he would come in town and uh, he, he got his own. He, yeah, he got his own bedroom, and that you know, we, we gave him a little bit of freedom in, in some of the some of the decisions. But and, and I ended up repainting the inside of your condo. And what else now did I do? Well, you did something for <laughs> getting staying there for free. I mean, geez. Yeah. Rob gets hired as the new GM of the Toronto Raptors and is putting the blueprints and rebuilding plans in place. Now there's positive progress, but then he gets a surprise that is let go only after two years. So it's rebound time. Yeah, so I, uh, so I, so I got let go, um, which was actually a shock because um, I, you know, we were actually progressing very well and following the plan of rebuilding. And we, and my philosophy was, you build a, you build a, an NBA team philosophically just like you build a high school team and how I build a college team. With, with as much talent as you can, but character, chemistry, guys that want to be involved in the community, um, uh, guys that uh, have integrity and, and work hard and, you know, the whole works. And that's what we did, and we were, were doing that. So it was, it was a shock, but, you know, that happens in the NBA. And so I was fortunate enough that uh, the owner in Minnesota, Glenn Taylor, uh, called me and asked me to come back. And and help out and so so i did and we had never sold our house in minnesota um my wife who's a nurse continued working in minnesota and she would go back and forth between toronto so it was it was an easy move back and and that was uh um fun but but challenging too because we went through some real challenging times um in minnesota during that stretch that that i was there in the second time and your your sons were going to school there, right? I mean, they were, were they mm-hmm. in college then? Uh, they they started college um, right when I went to Toronto. My oldest was going into his sophomore year. My youngest was just starting, so that made the move easier too because they were both uh, a little bit out of town, you know, like an hour and a half away. So it wasn't like I was just going to move away from them. So I um, that, that that made it much easier. As a result of Rob leaving Toronto and returning to Minnesota, Pete was also without a job. Six months went by, something like that, and I figured I was involuntarily retired, and that was it. You know, and I thought it was a good run, had a great career, you know, had a great, great ride. And then Cleveland called and said, would you, Danny Ferry called me and said, would you be interested in helping us 
with draft preparation and and scouting and you don't have to move to Cleveland to do it uh, come in for meetings come in for home stands periodically playoff games and obviously for the draft um, so I said yeah I'd love to love to do that and ended up doing it for 10 years with them and uh, stayed Was through it 10 years 10 wow. years yeah stayed through stayed through the championship in 2016 and for you, you had a long run after that as well. No, I was, you know, I, I was there another 10, ten years uh, as well. So I spent a total of 23, 23 years with the Timberwolves um, with a two-year two break in, in Toronto. Uh, but, yeah, and it was, um, I mean, it was good. I, I went back, and, and Kevin uh, McHale was still the GM, and, and he and I are good friends, and I have great respect for Kevin. So it was very, very easy to go back and, we were rebuilding again um, because they had, you know, gone through. Uh, while I was gone, those two years, they ended up firing Flip and kind of just taking a downturn. And all of a sudden, we're rebuilding again. So, having some experience now in rebuilding, <laughs> it was uh, it, it was fun. And everybody, everybody on the staff were great, and they all got along well and everything. And then, um, and then Kevin ended up in a really convoluted whole different thing he ended up getting fired as well and then they brought in david Kahn, which is mostly things that i can't speak on on the air i understand and then obviously after that with a new regime a lot of times they come in and they just want us to do things their own way right so every everything completely changed and it was um it was it was it was difficult and and nothing worked. Uh, we we just actually got worse. You know, just we had no team chemistry. It was just bringing in players to bring in players, and and then finally Dave Kahn was fired, and they brought Flip back as um, president of basketball operations, and eventually head coach as well. And you know, Flip's a very good friend of mine, so that that worked you know really well, and we we started making progress. We. We had some great drafts, you know. We we got um, Towns, and then we worked a deal to get get Wiggins, and I uh, got Zach Levine, and you know we were we were getting a lot of pieces to the puzzle. Uh, it was working very very well, and then Flip got cancer and died like right before the start of the season, and so we all became interim. And at the end of the year, uh, the ownership decided to hire a new new guy and they brought in Tom Thibodeau so um, a lot of us especially the older guys we, we were all gone and so that was pretty much my again involuntary retirement when a new coach and especially a new GM is hired it is usually expected that a new regime will bring in their own people and when Minnesota hired a new GM Rob found himself alongside Pete as involuntarily retired now, I always hear that retiring can be difficult, especially those in sports, and I wanted to know what the toughest part about leaving basketball is. Although it may be that Rob decided to move permanently from Minnesota to Newport, Rhode Island, where Pete had already set up shop years ago. How tough is it to leave basketball, and, and or do you ever? I mean, right now, both of y'all live in, in Newport, Rhode Island. Right. Right, outside. Right. Right. Um, and y'all are together. Yeah. I, I mean... Are you Rob still paint, you're painting his stuff? No, but he mowed, he mowed my yard for quite a few years. Five uh, years before, because, uh, before he was involuntarily retired. 
he, he had to build a house five minutes away from me and, and eight, eight minutes eight minutes uh, okay, five was too me. five was too close was eight minutes, <laughs> to okay. get a little farther away than he that. was only there for one month every <laughs> year during those five years so i had to mow his yard for him and take care of his house for him but uh you know what it's it, for me rob may have a different answer it's worked out well rob's both rob's sons are in the nba so it gives gives me teams to follow with with both of the kids uh, and you know keep in touch uh, with friends and uh, we, we love living in Newport and you know all the things that, that comes with living there and so it's it couldn't be better as Pete says one of the toughest things when you retire is you, you sit back and you're going like you know what I've been a part of a team either as a player or a coach or a scout or a general manager or something since I was like, you know, 10 years old. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I don't, I'm not associated with the team. And so there's this huge gap that you're just used to because it's like a family, you know, being, being a part, part of a team. But as Pete says, it really helps because with, with my sons and with Dave being a league, and then I still follow the Timberwolves. I, I have a lot of good friends there, and so I'm still pulled for them. So I actually last year uh, went, went through I, I watched more NBA basketball last year than I probably have in – my entire career because I before you know I'd be out on the road scouting college games both Pete and Rob are retired from the NBA but the torch is being handed off to another generation of Babcocks Dave's son is currently running his own scouting media service and Rob's sons are currently involved with two different NBA franchises we got you know I mean Dave Dave is still in the league our, our little brother and um Though he's getting older too, so he's he's on the tail end of his career, but he's but he's still in the league. So both the boys, uh, my sons who are um, 33 and 32, um, the oldest one works for the 76ers. He's the director of player development, and the youngest uh, works right here in Atlanta. Just took a job this year with uh, Lloyd Pierce as a special assistant uh, coach, and they've 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 earned everything and work. And I I told him look at. Um, I almost discourage them from going into this career because it's it's difficult, you know, and it's not stable. And um, there's you're, you're much probably much happier overall being a high school coach, you know, or a, a small college coach. But if you want to do it, um, you know, go for it and, and work for it. So they, um, my oldest Chris uh, played played college ball, and then he was a junior college coach uh, for a year and then he was a graduate assistant down in Texas and a special assistant for three years and then he got a coaching internship with the Spurs because he developed a relationship from Texas and Austin and San Antonio and then Brett Brown uh, who was an assistant coach that Chris worked directly under got the head job in Philadelphia and so Chris has been in Philadelphia with Brett Brown ever since and Nate um, was going to play in college ended up uh, deciding to coach and started coaching high school even while he was in college so he had you know a lot of coaching experience before he left college and then he went to Michigan State as a graduate assistant with Tom Izzo and then a special assistant as well and then he was a um, assistant coach at Grand Valley State Division II school in Grand Rapids and then he went to the D-League um, worked for Orlando Magic's team in Erie and then he got a job with the Brooklyn Nets. He was there for two years as the video coordinator, and then he, um, he he's now now in Atlanta. So, and those guys got got all those jobs by themselves. Um, they they worked hard, and 
and and they earned it. So you know, I'm proud of both of them. It seems like a lot of the grinding that maybe they've seen from what you, what we've just heard here, you know, not just the volunteering, but the the path to to, to their ultimate goal, which is uh, the NBA. I mean, talk about maybe um, Matt. Yeah, Matt, uh, Dave's son, um, has been involved with the league, just never on the basketball side or with the, on the franchise side. Uh, he he's used to tease us that he was going to make a whole lot more money than any of us ever made. He's going to become an agent, and he did. And he worked as an agent for you know, a number of years for different agencies, then started his own agency. Um, and then he realized that he, he really missed the game part of it. And uh, so he's now kind of starting his own business of – of scouting, consulting, and and uh, you know, he worked for me last year. Yeah, I I, I know he did work for you, and I mean he, he loves it. Uh, he travels around, watches games, writes reports. Uh, just you know, the game He's is important. All over, he is absolutely all over the place. Oh, yes, yeah. I saw him in Charleston last week. Yeah, he was in Kansas City the last couple of days uh, during Thanksgiving at a tournament there or outside of Kansas City. So he's. Uh, you know he's involved, and you know, the game's not far behind him. He's right there. Yeah. So the good the good thing is when I found out that Matt was going to become an agent. You know, I mean, from our, our from our end, you're, you're going like, your you're eyes. Going to be, so I so I, I I call him up. I said, so you're going to be an agent, huh? And I said, yeah. I says, I go, well, all right. At least you're not going to be a referee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With scouting, you're taking a lot of road trips, and throughout the decades of working in the NBA, the Babcocks have put in millions of miles, which means they have to have many stories. So I asked them to share some funny ones and possibly a favorite Marty moment. I'll tell you, tell you two crazy ones, and without mentioning names, but there, there was a scout lived on the West Coast, and and we were all going to the Portsmouth Invitational to PIT, which your dad was greatly responsible for developing into a premier tournament and so he was flying from the west coast uh to port to norfolk and through atlanta very very heavy sleeper and so he the plane landed in atlanta and this was back you know when oftentimes flights weren't sold out and you actually would have a whole row to yourself so they land in atlanta he's he had fallen asleep everybody gets off the plane People get on the plane. He's still asleep. Nobody happened to be in his row, so nobody flight attendant checked anything or anything like that. They take off, so they land. He gets off the plane. He thinks he's landed in Atlanta, ready to change planes to go to Norfolk. Starts looking around, realizes oh, this doesn't look like Atlanta Airport. <laughs> he was in Orlando, <laughs> and uh, so he had to go and explain to them what he thinks happened he wasn't quite sure and so he's you know there's the travel stories you go on and on i have a guy that that worked for me who's infamous um we're and we're, we're we're very good friends but he has something like every single week and we could spend a whole <laughs> afternoon just talking about his stories but the one that we're in toronto and he's in scouting in france and he's scouting a game in like downtown Paris and he's staying out at a hotel by the airport. So he's taking the, the subway out and it's after the game, you know, the late at night, he misses a stop. 
So keep going. So he goes, oh, shoot, I missed the stop. So he finds someone that speaks English and asks him, so what do you do? And this lady said, look at the this train. Just stay on it. It'll, it'll come to a stop where the line ends and come right back there and then get off on, on this station. He said, okay, great. So he, uh, he does that. Everybody gets off the train. And, you know, he's waiting for everybody to get back on the train. Nobody gets back on the train. And he's going like, what the heck's going on? The train had deadhead. It was done for the day. And the doors were all locked. <laughs> and he calls me. I'm out scouting. And he, he calls me. I'm, you know, uh, I don't know time difference, but I'm on the road. And I go like, what do you want me to do from here? <laughs> There's nothing I could do. I said, find a comfortable spot and plan and spend a night in the train. So he gets all, you know, finds a comfortable spot and he's he's ready to spend the night in the train. And finally, you know, this worker goes goes by and he's literally like on the window, like. <laughs> oh, he couldn't get out. He, no, he couldn't get out. The doors were all locked. He couldn't he couldn't get out of the train. And so they finally, the guy comes by and he lets him out and he he takes a cab back to the hotel. Well, you've heard this story before, but when I was a young assistant coach for the San Diego Clippers, I called your dad in Atlanta, and I said, I've got a, there's this guy, Marty, you've got on your list at Southwest or Northwest Louisiana State or something like that. He goes, yeah, you need to see that guy. I said, and your dad says, I need to, I need to see him too, so we'll go together. I said, okay. He said, um, let's fly into New Orleans. Uh, and, he's, and your dad says to me, you rent the car, which I was more than happy to do, as we know Marty's driving record. And so I fly from San Diego across country to New Orleans. I meet your dad in the airport. I get the rent-a-car, and we start driving. And we drive whatever's an hour, hour and a half, and we get to Baton Rouge. And we still have another hour and a half to go. And I said, Marty, I, I'm just curious. Is, do they have an airport here in Baton Rouge? I mean, we could have cut off an hour and a half each way on this trip. And he goes, yeah, I think they do. But uh, I had a senior ticket into New Orleans, you know, so I saved a lot of money flying to New Orleans. <laughs> I said, great. <laughs> so we drove, turned this drive into a six-hour drive instead of a three-hour drive going round trip. Oh, Lord. And that this, was, you know, and you know the a, stories. What about, a, what about a Marty moment? Oh, my gosh. There's, you know, there's, there's so many of them. Um, one one of the things is, uh, you know, Marty used to, he, he was the the NBA director of scouting, and he he wrote you know reports on everybody, um, and and I and I, I read all all these reports, and a lot of them it was it would be so funny you'd read this long narrative about this guy, and then it gets down to like the the last sentence, and he goes, this guy can't play dead. <laughs> and I'm going like, I just read all of that. And I said, Marcy, I just read all of this. Why don't you just say it at the top? This guy can't play dead. And <laughs> Oh, Lord. Well, listen, guys, I, I really appreciate your time here. Um, as friends, uh, it's always good to see you. And uh, glad you're here with family. And uh, I wish you a safe travels. And get to the Celtics Hawks game tonight. So it's our pleasure. Thank Absolutely. You. Thanks for having us in and I hope that picture's not on your driver's license. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I actually kinda like it though.
Check back here at thedriveryanblake.com for more stories on The Drive on the Road with Ryan Blake. Oh, yeah. It's all about the drive, baby.